Good morning, everyone. It is certainly great to be here with you all. Um, I was uh, standing, as I'm standing here this morning, it was funny, on the way to church this morning, my wife looked over at me. She said, you know, you're starting to look like Santa Claus. And I'm thinking, well, honey, thank you for that great confidence boost right before I stand in front of the church this morning. I appreciate that. So um, I'm letting my uh, beard grow out a little bit because uh, Ben Spangler once told me that I look like our pastor's favorite preacher, Rick Warren. So I'm trying to, and thank you for that confidence boost too, by the way. So anyway, it is so great to be here with you. Um, uh, uh, like a lot of what uh, Dave this morning, he just uh, talking about pastor and, and just all of the work he does. And certainly everyone here knows that we are so blessed to to be ministered to on a regular basis by Pastor Harold. And by the way, you will soon realize that even more here shortly. But um, uh, we are so blessed that, that, uh, that he labors in the word so diligently and I mean, in all seriousness, there are a lot of pastors out there who are just lazy. And um, uh, if you don't realize it, you are very blessed. The other thing I would just mention here, and, and I was actually thinking about this before, but uh, uh, you're also blessed to be ministered to by this group of elders. Um, these men... They love God, they love his word, and they love you. They really do. They care about you. And again, this is um, it's no small thing to, to be ministered to by, by men who, who are, are just ministering to you in sincerity, ministering to you in, in, in truth and love, so... so so we need to be just so thankful, and, and that's one of the many reasons that I'm very thankful to be part of this church is because of our pastor and because of our elders. Um, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, and uh, uh, thank you, Mike, for reading that, that text this morning. Uh, of course, our text, it should be familiar to most of you, it comes from Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. And let me just, as you're turning back there, let me just say this. Whenever I have the opportunity to speak to you, I usually go in one of two basic directions. Sometimes I will highlight some aspect of a particular doctrine. In most cases, it will have to do with some biblical truth that has been maligned and is under attack. For example, that is why I often like to talk about divine sovereignty and, and salvation. These are certainly areas of doctrinal belief within the Protestant church that have been hijacked by Arminianism, uh, revivalism, higher criticism, liberation theology, and, and a host of other heterodox beliefs that steer us away from what God reveals in his word. <clears throat> At other times, and this is the case today, I will choose a topic or passage of scripture that speaks to an area of struggle that I see within the church and, and even in my own life. 
These type messages aren't always theologically deep or, or difficult to grasp, but they are sometimes difficult to hear because they call us out. And they challenge us to step outside of our comfort zones. Because of this, we need to be reminded and encouraged in these areas on a regular basis. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As most of you know, and forgive the obvious understatement here, we live in a culture that is increasingly at odds with God's revealed will. Our culture marks, or mocks and marginalizes the values and truths that come from God, while at the same time advocating and, and even celebrating almost every, ti- or every kind of perversion and distortion of common grace ethics. Just to give you a couple of examples, these last couple of decades have seen a rise in the normalization of homosexuality, transgenderism, and other unnatural perverse sexual behavior. We have been told that these are acceptable alternative lifestyles and that those who disagree are what? Bigots. Homosexuals are often portrayed as victims of discrimination. And of course, Christians who oppose this type of lifestyle because of God's word are often portrayed as angry, judgmental, heartless, Pharisee-like hypocrites who are totally detached from the real-life difficulties that these people experience. Any objection to this type of lifestyle, we are told, is due to prejudice and hatred of those who are different. And if you have paid uh, attention to current events over these last few years, you're undoubtedly aware of the aggressive measures that have been taken to punish Christian-owned businesses and even churches that refuse to comply with the demands of the, the LGBTQ, whatever it's called, community. Of course, what often gets overlooked in all the vitriol are the consequences of this lifestyle. Aside from being in direct odds with God's revealed plans for marriage and sexuality, the increase in attempted normalization of homosexuality and its various offshoots have had a devastating impact on our culture, including the uh, increase in life-altering and fatal diseases, the further breakdown of the family. And this breakdown has destructive uh, biological, psychological, and social effects, especially on children. As a result, we are seeing, among other things, an increase in youth drug and alcohol abuse, increased rates of teenage pregnancy, and higher rates of depression, just to name a few. 
Another aspect of this lifestyle that doesn't get a great deal of attention is its wanton lack of sexual restraint. And I realize that this is a sensitive subject, so I will use as much tact as I possibly can. But this information is very telling, and and in fact, it's staggering. It's staggering. A study conducted a few years back by Bell and Weinberg reveals that 89%, that's the overwhelming majority, of homosexual men have over 50 partners during their lifetime. 43%, nearly half, have over 500 And 28% have over 1,000. Staggering. On top of that, 79% say that half of these partners are strangers. Again, I know this is a sensitive subject, but I mention it because it is telling of the fact that this attempted normalization is ultimately rooted in a desire for unrestrained debauchery with little or no thought given to its far-reaching negative impact. Another area where we see biblical values undermined is, of course, abortion. Since 1973, when abortion became legal as a matter of federal law, there have been over 61 million abortions performed in the United States alone. 61 million That is over 61 million of the most vulnerable among us who under the guise of women's health have been legally murdered. To give you some perspective, 61 million is roughly 18% of the current population here in the United States. Or consider this, in all wars and military conflicts combined from the Revolutionary War through today, America has suffered just over 1.3 million casualties. Now, that's a lot of people to be sure, but that number pales in comparison to the number of unborn children killed in their mother's womb. The abortion industry claims about as many American lives in one year as all U.S. wars combined have claimed in nearly 250 years. To provide even more perspective, if you do not count abortion, there are about 47 murders in the U.S. each day. But if you factor in abortion, the number of people murdered in the U.S. each day goes from 47 to just over 3,600. To put it very plainly, when it comes to causes of death in the U.S., there is nothing that ever has or that currently does claim as many American lives as the slaughter of her own children in the womb. Nothing even comes close. I think it's also worth noting that abortion is rooted in racism. It's kind of ironic for all the grandstanding we see from our politicians, especially those who claim to be on the side of minorities and yet still support abortion. It should be noted that the highest per capita rate of abortion is of unborn black children. Planned Parenthood, which is probably the most well-known abortion provider in the U.S. and is funded by years of my tax dollars, by the way. Oh, 
And as an aside, I don't know if you saw this this week, but I saw a news story this this past week that Planned Parenthood just fired their president because she was trying to shift their focus away from abortion. In light of recent efforts in some states to limit abortion, the board of Planned Parenthood has decided to double down on abortion and become more involved in abortion politics. And so they didn't like the direction that she was pushing him, and they, they sent her out. Anyway, back to where I was going. Did you know that 79% of Planned Parenthood uh, clinics are in predominantly poor minority urban communities? Of course, the argument can be made that uh, uh, these are the communities where there is greatest need. But I want to share something that I'm sure some of you know, but others may not. Margaret Sanger who funded or who founded Planned Parenthood is infamously known for being, among other things, a racist. And I'm not talking about the so-called racist of modern politics who are racist because they want border security. I'm talking about a real hate-filled, eliminate minorities type of racist. Now, abortion advocates, particularly those associated with Planned Parenthood, uh, will try to spin the truth and portray her as being a product of the time and as having, I've seen this quote, a paternalistic attitude toward black people. But her words and actions speak for themselves. She was racist enough to be invited to speak to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan, an invitation which she accepted and wrote about in her autobiography. On top of that, She wrote these very chilling words in a 1939 letter to Dr. Clarence J. uh, Gamby, and I quote, We do not want the word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, end quote. I don't know about you, but I think paternalistic is probably not the right word to describe her attitude. And let's just be honest here. For all the political talking points regarding abortion and women's health and and all of that, rarely are abortions performed because the health of the mother is at stake. The fact is the overwhelming majority of abortions are performed simply as a means of birth control. And most of them, over 80%, are performed on single women. What does this tell us? Well, very much like the LGBT movement that we were just talking about, the acceptance of abortion is rooted in a desire for unrestrained debauchery. Make no mistake. Our culture turns a blind eye toward the horrors of abortion because we have turned a blind eye toward God's standards for sexual behavior. And abortion allows people to be promiscuous without having to deal with the consequences of an unwanted child. Again, these are just a couple of very visible examples. And they are just the tip of the iceberg. We could go on and on regarding how our culture's values are at odds with with God. But you get the idea. We are watching, I believe, what we read about in the last half of Romans 1 play out before our eyes. God has given our culture over to the natural consequences of its sin And in its blatant unrighteousness, our our culture suppresses the truth 
and continues down its destructive path. Now, we see these things, and as Christians, we are disturbed, naturally. Certainly, it speaks to the fact that our culture is growing increasingly abhorrent and and intolerant toward those who share the beliefs and values that most of us here this morning share. The, The restraining hand of God's common grace is being pulled further and further away. And I must admit, it is easy to get caught up in this culture war. It is easy to be distracted by all the talking heads and their snide comments. And frankly, when I see the direction in which our culture is heading, when I see all the loud and godless voices that are seemingly dragging our culture into the gutter and further and further away from God... I am concerned for my son and the world that he uh, is going to grow up in should the Lord tarry. And I suspect that many of you share these same concerns. But let me ask you, what else should we expect? What else should we expect? What should we expect from people who are clearly in rebellion against God? What should we expect from those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and who have been given over to unbelief? As we know, apart from God's transforming grace, man's heart is deceitfully wicked. As Jesus himself tells us, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, And in Mark 7, beginning in verse 21, he says, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. We also know that people love to live in darkness so that their evil will not be exposed. Jesus reminds us of this in John three nineteen when he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. And so I ask again, what should we expect? If people's hearts are corrupted with sins such as sexual immorality and murder, should we be surprised that they would give approval to things such as promiscuous sexual behavior and abortion? Should we? And should it surprise us that they would choose to live in darkness and look for every possible means to extinguish any light that would expose their evil? Well, as we will see in our text this morning, Jesus knew exactly what to expect. Evil is everywhere and it is active. Like a a parasitic germ, evil spreads its putridness and corruption with increasing intensity. And left to itself, the world will continue down its dark and destructive path. It will continue to fester and deteriorate until it has completely rotted away. And yet God in his wisdom and grace has provided a means to help ease the deterioration of our world. 
He has provided a means of light in a world covered with darkness. And what does that mean? It is his people. It is you. It is me. When the Lord says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. When he says, you are the light of the world. As we will see, he is saying that his church has been set apart as a common grace good for an otherwise dark and evil world. But if we are going to fill these roles effectively, we must embrace and overcome the challenges that come with this responsibility. We must act with courage and be willing to suffer persecution. We must be willing to put aside the desires of the old self and embrace those qualities that are consistent with the new creation we are in Christ. Now, to help keep us organized this morning, I've broken the message down into three simple parts. We are going to look first at the responsibility of being salt and light. The responsibility of being salt and light. Secondly, we are going to look at the difficulties of being salt and light. The difficulties of being salt and light. And third, we are going to look at the results of being salt and light. So let's look at the responsibility of being salt and light. As most of you know, our Lord was a master of metaphors. When he taught, he was able to illustrate the profound with something ordinary. And that's certainly the case in our text today. When the Lord says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. In ancient times, salt had many uses, but its primary and most important function was its use as a preservative. As you know, they did not have refrigeration or ice-making capabilities in the ancient world. And the only way they could keep meat from going bad was to rub it down with salt. And by the way, we still use salt in that same way uh, today, for example, in cured meats like my personal favorite uh, country ham. That could explain the Santa Claus comment, but we'll let that go. Salt basically works as a preservative by absorbing water from the meat, which makes the environment too dry for harmful bacteria to live. Well, as believers, we act as salt in a spiritual sense. As I mentioned earlier, evil is a parasitic germ that spreads its putridness and corruption with increasing intensity. And left to itself, the world would continue to deteriorate until it has completely rotted away. But when we live in a way that honors God, when our lives reflect those values and truths, those qualities that come from walking in the Spirit, like salt, we affect the environment around us. Our example influences the world, making it much more difficult for evil to, thr- uh, for evil to thrive. And thus, we serve to impede its growth. And by the way, saints, don't underestimate the power you have in this regard. Being salt is a, it's a subtle, indirect influence. You might not always notice it, but as one who professes to be Christian, your non-Christian friends and family and even your enemies, they're watching you. Whether they themselves realize it or not, deep down, they are suppressing the truth. And when we model a life that is shaped by God's transforming grace, it has real impact on the world around us. 
Well, more about that in a minute. As believers, we are not only salt, but as Jesus tells us in verse 14, we are also the light of the world. Like salt, spiritual light works to influence a world that is opposed to God. However, unlike salt, this influence is not necessarily subtle or, uh, or indirect, whereas salt uh, slows corruption, light exposes it by revealing the truth. It's important to note here that as believers, we are not ourselves the light, but we do act as luminaries of the light. And uh, this is almost cliche now. You, you've heard this analogy, but it's very fitting. Like the sun in the sky, Jesus is the primary source of light. And like the moon, which reflects the light of the sun in the darkness, we serve to reflect the light of Christ. You get the idea. Especially when we share God's word and the gospel to a sin-darkened world. Now, um, when I was preparing the message this morning, I couldn't help but think about this uh, one time a few years ago when I had the privilege of seeing John MacArthur in person at Together for the Gospel in Louisville. Early in his message, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, you've heard it said that we are to preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. And of course, has anyone else heard that saying? MacArthur then added, I don't know who said it and I don't want to attribute it to the wrong person because it is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Now, MacArthur's intent wasn't to minimize the importance of modeling the gospel uh, in the way that we live. In fact, in many respects, as we just discussed, that is what it means to be salt. But what he is uh, pointing out is that when it comes to sharing the gospel, being salt by itself is not enough. Being salt by itself is not enough. Salt only slows the corruption of sin, but it does not and cannot communicate the truth of the gospel. And that is why light is so important. When we act as light by sharing the gospel, and when that light is coupled with a salty life, a, a life lived in faithful obedience to God, we become effective servants for the kingdom. Now, Again, uh, in verse 13, notice what Jesus says here. And I'm going to emphasize this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. The three words, you are the, or the, are very important. First in both, wor- or both verses, the word you is plural. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus is speaking to his audience, not as individuals, but as a collective whole. He is saying that believers, the church, together have been set apart as salt and light. The word you in both verses is also emphatic. And in both verses, we see the definite article translated as the used. And these things are important because they point to the fact that believers alone function in this capacity. Believers alone function in this capacity. And also the word are is important. The word are is translated from the Greek word esta, which simply means to be. And the significance of this is the fact that 
Jesus here is making a statement of fact. He is not saying this is how you become salt and light. This is what you need to do if you're going to be salt and light. He is saying very plainly that by the virtue of your sincere profession of faith and by the fact that you are following him, you are already salt and light. When we put this together with the emphatic and plural form of the word you and with the definite article the, what we see here is that the church and the church alone, not politicians, not, not uh, our schools, not, not anything else, the church and the church alone has been set apart exclusively to serve as salt and light in a corrupt and dark world. That's our responsibility alone, no one else. The challenge here that we have is not to become something that we are not. The challenge we have is to not suppress and hide what we already are. You see that? Well, that brings me to the next point in our discussion, the difficulties of being salt and light. Notice again in verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let me ask you, what is it that makes salt useful as a preservative? What is it that makes salt useful as a preservative? It's not a trick question. It's a very simple answer. It's because it's salty. It's because it's salty. It possesses a unique quality that is unlike any other. And that is the quality that allows it to be effective. When salt's not salty, it's not very useful. Well, just as useful salt must possess those salty qualities that set it apart, a useful Christian must also possess those qualities that distinguish it from the world. The thing people see that makes us effective is not what makes us the same, but it's what makes us different. When Jesus refers here to salt that has lost its taste, there's some speculation that, that he may have in mind the salt that comes from areas in and around the Dead Sea, which was of an inferior quality because it uh, was polluted with other minerals. Unlike the quality salt from the Mediterranean Sea, this polluted salt was essentially useless. And in this same way, if we as Christians fail to live out those godly qualities that make us unique, if like chameleons, we become more like the world around us, then like tasteless salt, we become ineffective in serving the purposes for which we have been set apart. Notice again in our text, beginning uh, in verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. As Christians, we must be luminous, but we must also be visible. We must also be visible. And, and note the tone of Jesus' words here. A city 
that is elevated above everything around it with its walls and buildings is clearly visible to everyone who approaches it, right? Since my wife's not here, just to get her back, I'm going to tell this story. We were coming back from small group in Ashland City, and we're coming down Highway 12. Are you familiar with that? And you get to Highway 12, you get at the intersection when Raleigh Parkway. Is everyone familiar with And my wife, you can see the city lights off in the distance. And my wife said, what city is that? <laughs> and not wanting her to be in darkness, I told her, Clarksville. <laughs> And she believed me. So anyway, um, I'm not going to say any more. I've already probably got in trouble. Kendra, don't say anything. No. (laughs) So anyway, back to where we were. A city that is set on a hill is clearly visible to everyone who approaches it. It cannot be hidden. Likewise, when a person lights a lamp, he or she doesn't then put that lamp under a basket so that its light cannot be seen. And the tone of Jesus' words are, what a foolish thing that would be. Why would you light a, light a lamp and put it under a basket? That makes no sense. No, when the lamp is lit, it is put on a lampstand so that it provides light for the house. Earlier, when Jesus talks about tasteless salt, he is condemning worldliness. Here, when he talks about hidden light, he is condemning isolationism. He is condemning isolationism. He is condemning the sin of keeping our faith hidden. In this case, not by trying to blend in with the world, but by keeping ourselves isolated from it. And and hear me on this. Isolation need not be physical isolation. When we fail to proclaim the gospel, when we play it safe as far as sharing our faith, we are hiding our light. Does everyone understand that? Does that make sense? Now, At this point, we should all be asking ourselves, am I a salty Christian? Do I allow the light of Christ to shine forth in my life? And if not, why not? Well, there may be more, but in all my years of studying theology and serving in the church, I have observed and come to understand three essential reasons why Professing Christians fail to be salty salt and fail to shine the light of Christ. The first one, and by the way, this is the scariest one of them all. Some professing Christians fail to act as salt and light simply because they are not truly Christian. I know that we live in a culture where many people profess to be Christian. In fact, it wasn't too long ago that nearly 80% of people in America profess to be Christian. But as we know, not every profession of faith is sincere. Jesus makes that point when discussing the false teachers. For example, in Matthew seven twenty one, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, just to clarify, Jesus is not suggesting here that obedience is what gets a person to heaven, but what he is saying is that obedience is the true gauge to the sincerity of a person's profession. Genuine faith will always reveal itself through a believer's actions. It's not enough to merely say that Jesus is our Lord. He must actually be our Lord. Notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Very much like those Jesus describes in Matthew 7, Paul is warning Timothy about those who profess to be Christian and in many ways even appear to be Christian. But in reality, their lives are centered on themselves. Like tasteless salt, they are more like the people of the world than of God. Paul makes a similar point in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you live in unrepentant sin, and I want to be clear here, there's a difference between struggling and being unrepentant, and I will talk about that more in just a minute. But if you live in unrepentant sin you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's that simple. And and to put it in the context of our message here this morning, you are not going to be effective as salt and light. Why? Because your profession of faith was never legitimate. Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, there are people who believe that you can be children of God today and children of the devil tomorrow. Then again, children of God the next day and children of the devil again the day after that. But believe me, it is not so. If the work of grace be really wrought of God in your soul, it will last through your whole life. And if it does not so last, that proves that it is not the work of God. Hence, I do rejoice that regeneration, once truly wrought of the Spirit of God, is an incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. But beware, professor, lest you should be like salt that has lost its savor and therefore is good for nothing. He goes on to say, Christ never contemplated the production of secret Christians, Christians whose virtues would never be displayed, pilgrims who would travel to heaven by night and never be seen by their fellow pilgrims or anyone else. So, First reason that people fail to be salt and light is because they, in some cases, are not Christian. A second reason why some professing Christians fail to act as salt and light 
is because they still struggle with life-dominating sin. And what I'm doing here, I'm separating Christians from those who are unrepentant. It's important to mention here that sin is a problem in uh, some respect for all of us. All people, even believers, are naturally predisposed to sin. And each of us has a propensity towards specific sins that others may not. For example, earlier I talked about homosexuality. Some people struggle with that particular sin, while others do not. However, many of those who do not struggle with homosexuality may struggle with some sinful forms of heterosexuality. You get the idea. Unfortunately, sin in whatever form it takes is like a web that entangles us. And what happens? If we give sin an inch, what happens? It takes a mile, right? It takes a mile. It's also important to mention that struggling with sin is not the same as being unrepentant. To be unrepentant is to live a life that is characterized by sin. In many ways, someone who is unrepentant will will justify his sin. Uh, uh, The repentant believer, on the other hand, will admit and confess his sin. An unrepentant sinner may regret or even feel sorrow for his sin because of its consequences. But a repentant believer, though he may struggle, he feels sorrow because he knows he is sinning against a holy God. But here's the thing, and I'm talking to those of you who have put your your trust in Christ. You are no longer a slave to the sins that once held you captive. Let me repeat that. You are no longer a slave to the sins that once held you captive. The same grace that brought you to saving faith in the gospel also set you free from sin's bondage. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, the old self has been what? Put to death. You are now a new creation in Christ, empowered to do those things that God commands you to do. Let me ask you, if we have truly been set free from sin's captivity, then why do we still sin? Why do we still sin? And I'm not necessarily looking for the theological answer here. We all know that sin still, still resides in our temporal bodies. Uh, and, and because of that, we have a propensity to return to those things, again, that once held us captive. But just, I'm looking for a practical answer. Very practically, why do we still sin? Why do we sometimes desire so badly to return to the prison from which we have been set free? Why? I've heard various authors and theologians talk about this or allude to it in some way. I think it's important for us to recognize we sin and often fail as salt and light because we are trying to find satisfaction in something other than God. We are trying to find satisfaction in something other than God. We all do it. When we see and we are saying, at least in that moment, the fulfillment or pleasure or joy or whatever I'm going to get from that sin is more satisfying than the satisfaction that I get from following and serving and honoring God. You see that? 
Now, I can imagine unrepentant sinners hearing this and saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who have experienced God's amazing grace, for those of us who experience the saving and transforming grace, we know that there is nothing more precious than the satisfaction that comes from being part of and serving in God's family. And we also know the sorrow and shame that we feel when we cast aside uh, those things for a fleeting moment of pleasure. With that in mind, when it comes to being salt and light, you have everything available to you that you need. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It is not. That doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle. You are. But it is a foolish and unnecessary thing to allow life-dominating sin to keep us from being effective in these roles, especially when we've been set free from sin's dominion in our lives. Well, a third reason professing Christians fail to act faithfully as salt and light is because they fear man. They fear man. Being tasteless salt and hiding our light are sometimes survival tactics in which we attempt to shield ourselves from conflict. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be persecuted. And sometimes the easiest thing to do is to just play along with the world and avoid confronting it, right? But what does Jesus tell us? And we read this earlier. This is one of the reasons I wanted to read uh, for our scripture text this morning, the, the passages that we did. Uh, right before he begins talking about salt and light, look at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10, what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't want to uh, read this as saying or I do not read this as saying that we should intentionally try to be persecuted. He's not saying that. But am I wrong in reading this and seeing that there is blessing in persecution? Am I wrong in believing that Jesus is suggesting that mockery and persecution are to be expected if we are to be his followers? And is he suggesting that we should actually find joy and being persecuted. Yes, yes, yes. Notice what Jesus does here. He shifts the focus away from the temporal and onto the eternal. We can find joy in the persecution we suffer because it is temporal and short when compared to the reward in heaven that awaits faithful believers. Let me read another verse from Paul's second letter, uh, letter to Timothy. And this one uh, from chapter 1, verse 7. But let me give you just a, a brief background. As many of you know, Timothy was a young pastor in Ephesus 
And um, there he faced opposition and the threat of persecution from people outside and even inside the church. And there may have uh, even been some uh, dissatisfaction with Timothy on the part of Paul, who realized that Timothy was allowing his fear to affect his ministry. And in light of all this, this is what Paul writes. He says, again in 2 Timothy uh, verse 1, or 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let me read that again. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In other words, to Timothy, and again in the context of our message here this morning, to all of us who struggle to act as salt and light because, because of the fear of man, because of the fear of being persecuted or, or the fear of facing opposition or some type of conflict, Paul is saying that fear is not something you receive from God. Why is that important? Because if we are acting in fear, if we are responding to these situations in fear, we're not following God. We're not following what he would have us to do. If you're failing to be salt and light because you're fearful, then you're listening to someone else's voice and not the voice of God. On the contrary, What does come from God are those things that the believer needs to be courageous and bold in the face of opposition and persecution. And saints, that is my hope for for all of us here this morning, that when it comes to acting faithfully as salt and light, that we would be courageous and bold in the face of opposition. Well, we've talked about the reality of being salt and light and the difficulties of being salt and light. Let's look real quickly at the results of being salt and light. Of course, as we've already discussed, when we act faithfully as salt and light, we become effective ministers for the kingdom of God and accomplish in some measure the purpose for which those roles are established. But notice what Jesus says in verse uh, 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When I think about those qualities that set Reformed theology apart from non-Reformed viewpoints, of course, the sovereignty of God comes to mind, as do a few other things. But all of these distinctions are really, at their core, rooted in a much bigger truth. And it is this. Everything exists for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. And that is certainly the case in our text today. It is God who works through the gospel to set us free from bondage and sin. And our testimony and proclamation of the gospel are meant to exalt God by extolling his grace and his power. Some of you may be familiar with what has come to be known as the the 40 Martyrs of Sabas. I don't know uh, if, how many of you have heard of that, but Sabas, as it was called in the ancient world, is in present-day Turkey where this martyrdom uh, took place. 
The 40 martyrs were 40 Roman soldiers who had converted to Christianity. Because of this, they were stripped naked, tied to a frozen lake, and promised that they would be set free and even given refuge in a hot bath if they renounced their faith. After a while, one of them relented, and as promised, he was set free and allowed to recover in a hot bath. But the other 39 would not relent. Some accounts of the story even report that they began to sing a hymn. As this happened, one of the guards who was charged with overseeing their persecution and had, who had undoubtedly heard the gospel himself, watching these men, he stripped off his clothes and joined the freezing men on the ice, bringing the number back to 40. And as he ran out onto the lake, he loudly proclaimed, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. By the next day, these men's bodies were frozen stiff with only a few still barely clinging to life. All 40 were cast into a fire and burned. I think this story very powerfully illustrates how salt and light work together. The Christian soldiers were obviously being persecuted because they allowed their light to to shine forth in a very dark place. And even in the midst of what I think would be nearly unbearable persecution, all but one maintained their saltiness. And what happened? God uses this powerful testimony to draw one of his own who professed his faith knowing that it meant a miserable death immediately. And thus he too, like the other 39, became salt and light all to the praise and glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we are, again, just so truly thankful for your word. We are thankful for um, uh, uh, these truths that you reveal to us through um, Matthew's gospel. I pray, Father, that you would, um, uh, uh, again, we know you've already given us the power. You, we know that you've given us everything we need to, to be effective as salt and light if we are truly your followers, if we are truly Christian. And I pray, Lord, that we would just take advantage of those things, that we would not um, uh, be entangled in our sin and that we would not uh, give in to the spirit of fear. But, Father, just be with us that we would act with courage, that we would... Um, uh, just use all of those resources that you have provided to be salty salt and that we would let our light shine forth. Again, all to your praise and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.